I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. On this week's show, we're concentrating on the techie topic of risk-weighted assets and how banks are trying to optimize, as they put it, their, uh, their risk weightings. Then we'll turn our attention to uh, the issue of accountancy, uh, another techie topic, looking at the way in which banks account for their own debt, the valuation of their own debt, which has been a big boost to uh, some banks' quarterly profits. And finally, we look at the big ongoing story of the Eurozone and the banks, particularly uh, in Italy at the moment, and how they're coping with the Eurozone problems. I'm joined today by Megan Murphy, investment banking correspondent, and Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent. And uh, Brooke, we'll start with that topic of risk-weighted assets, or RWAs. Um, And there are two interesting developments that we've been reporting on in uh, Monday's newspaper. Um, Firstly, let's talk about this broad topic, as I mentioned, of um, how banks are seeking to so-called optimise their risk weightings as a way to come come into line with the, uh, the tougher capital requirements that are being uh, foisted on them? Essentially, capital requirements are a ratio. And, and so there's a, a number you have to hit at the end. And so if you're a bank, you can either raise more capital, which is affected the numerator, or you can shrink your denominator, which are your risk-weighted assets. And right now, regulators, of course, would like banks to raise capital, but equity prices are low, so banks don't want to do it. So that what they are doing fundamentally is trying to figure out if there are ways to make their risk-weighted assets get smaller without actually stopping lending. So if, if they shrink the bottom half of the, uh, of the fraction, then they'll uh, be able to comply that way. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about in previous week's podcast is the idea of them selling off assets or shrinking their lending portfolios. But this is another way, maybe a more uh, slightly edgy way, to, <laughs> to hit the numbers by sh- shrinking what they judge the risk to be of those assets? Essentially, yes. And there's kind of two ways you can do this. One is completely legitimate and encouraged by the regulators. If you've been using what's called the standardized method, where you basically just, there are some basic numbers that, you know, sovereign debt is zero, you know, mortgage lending is a certain percentage, et cetera. If you switch from that and spend the money to do internal modeling that actually predicts losses, you get a bonus. Because the idea is if you're spending the money and actually looking at what you have, that's good for the world. And so there is a bonus for switching from standardized to risk to um, what's called internally internal rating space determined um, risk weights. And banks like BBVA, which have been slowly shifting from one to the other, are accelerating it because they want the bonus. Right. So this will help banks to comply with the ratios. Absolutely. Uh, And I guess, as you say, if it's done in an upfront way, in a way that's a more sophisticated uh, assessment of the risk, then maybe that's that's fine. But there's also the risk of cheating. There's absolutely the risk of cheating because the banks have to come up with models. And if the models aren't conservative enough, it it makes an asset look less risky than it is. 
And what's happened here that is very worrisome in some ways is this recession, because interest rates are low, there haven't been the same levels of loan default as there historically are. So everybody's models are, are more conservative because they're prepared for a much worse recession. Yeah, so, so the the models are basically uh, founded off the historic uh, experience of banks' own lending. So going back a few years. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Megan, do you think it's a, a risk that we're kind of storing up if we kind of go down this route of optimization? I mean, I think the problem here is twofold. The first is the problem with exactly as Burke said, is do the models work and do they accurately reflect the risk that's taken? And if there's anything that the crisis has taught us and the previous crisis has taught us is that it's actually the unexpected risk that usually causes, you know, systemic concern across the system and has led to the crisis we have. So it's usually the things that aren't being modeled correctly that lead to the problem. But the second thing is, as Patrick, you touched on, is optimization. You know, there's concern among analysts and among investors that either of these two ways of either selling off assets or optimizing your RWAs are actually going to be able to hit the targets that banks have put forward, which, as everyone knows, are quite ambitious at bringing down, you know, as much as 50% of RWAs across certain businesses, etc. So I think the problem is, is that a lot of banks are throwing up what look like very good numbers in terms of doing this, but whether or not they'll actually be able to achieve it and whether or not they'll actually be able to achieve it without, as Brooks says, cheating is a big unknown. We should mention now the other uh, interesting uh, new development on this is um, an intervention by Andy Haldane, uh, who's a senior executive at the Bank of England uh, and well known for his uh, his kind of views on on big macro topics like this. Um, he's come out and said that he thinks um, risk weightings should be potentially looked at not just in terms of the risk that they present to the bank, but the way that they interact with the economy and talked about maybe trying to make risk weightings uh, less punitive in a kind of recovering economy or a struggling economy in order to particularly to boost lending to certain areas of the economy like small business lending. Um, this is, as he puts it, kind of the, the real test of whether macro prudential regulation can work in practice. Do you think it's a, a valid way to go, Brooke? It's funny. In general, people, when they talk about macro prudential, think about increasing the risk weights to to lean against an upward cycle. And I think people are much more comfortable with that. That's a traditional way, way of, of doing thinking it. Regulation. The idea yeah. that you would ease things off in a down. I have to say, to me, this smacks of Alan Greenspan is he inflated the economy in the U.S. to get over the dot-com bubble. And so what do we got? We got the housing bubble. I, I think the chances that regulators and policymakers can call this one right and get the numbers right are really small. This sounds like Chinese you know, planned economy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brooke and I were talking about this earlier, just about the countercyclical issue. And the problem is always that in when things are good, they want banks to boost their capital buffers up to higher so that they can tap on them and when times are bad to sort of to still ease lending. But whether they have the discipline and the rigor and the credibility to sort of force that through. And as Brooke says, it does smack a little bit of of planned economy. Um, we'll see. I mean, I always like Mr. Haldane's blue sky thinking, but um, we'll whether see. It, yeah, whether it catches on on this, on this one would be interesting. Um, at the risk of uh, turning off our listeners altogether, let's <laughs> stick with another tech, techie topic for a moment. Um, uh, Megan, you've been looking at the issue of um, how banks for in accounting terms treat the value of their own debt um there was an interesting letter that uh, chris lucas the uh, finance director of barclays wrote to, in today's ft um about 
his view that, that we should uh, get rid of this practice of marking to market the valuation, uh, the value of, of banks' own debt. Um, it's had a, a very uh, distorting effect on underlying performance of, of late. Yeah, I mean, it has had a really distorting effect. It's an interesting one for us sitting in London because we've been sort of dealing with what is called DVA, um, FVA, you know, fair value adjustment for several quarters. This last third quarter, it made a huge swing in both the U.S. bank earnings to the tune of $16 billion for um, the leading U.S. banks. And it made it, it had a £10 billion swing for the top three U.K. banks. So it really did cause a huge um, swing this year. And basically what it is, is that it's almost counterintuitive in the sense that as banks are perceived as more risky, the value of their debt becomes cheaper in the market for them in theory to buy back. And that's why they get this big swing. And we and, and the theory being that if yeah. if they chose to buy back their own debt in the they market, could get they it could at a cheaper get, price. Yes. So there's a kind of paper gain there. Exactly. It's it's a classic paper gain in the sense. And to be fair, most analysts really discount it. And to be fair, also in Europe in particular, most banks are pretty rigorous about breaking it out from their results so that you can see where it affects. And it usually comes in banks, most in banks' investment banking divisions. The problem is, is when you have banks um, that don't break it out as clearly and therefore are allowed to sort of this quarter, we saw so many banks posting headline net profit gains, huge net profit gains, you know, Q on Q, particularly year on year, um, when, you know, you strip out the DVA and you're looking at a loss or you're yeah. looking at, you know, just eking into a profit. So uh, I do think that commentators, sophisticated commentators understand this. I think sophisticated investors understand this. I think analysts understand this, of course. But the problem is, is that banks rely on sort of getting these good early headlines out. And then the story actually creeps out much later when people parse through it. And, and uh, it's... Yeah, they get a momentum from exactly. uh, maybe less uh, specifically good investors uh, or, or, or learned investors, if you like, in that in terms of uh, buying into their stock on that headline numbers. Brooke, do you think that the timing of this... Uh, kind of call from some of the banks themselves to reverse this out uh, is interesting. Yeah, I noticed they've taken all their profits. So the next round will probably be that banks are seen as safer and the value of their debt will go up. And so they'll have to take it down. So they've just gotten the boost and now they're happy to give it up. It should also be pointed out not every bank does this. There are some banks that made the call at the beginning of the financial crisis saying we're not going to do this. We're just going to live with the fact that we don't get the benefit. That's a good point because a lot of banks at the moment are saying, oh, well, we hate to have to do this. Why do we have to do this? It's a a foolish accounting rule. But the only reason they have to do it is because they've done it all the way through the cycle. They chose to to do it. Yeah, Yeah. they took the first benefit in the financial crisis when things were really, really grim and they needed some help on their bottom lines. A lot of them decided to do it then and now they're stuck with it. Okay, well, uh, we'll be monitoring that uh, as we go forward. I'm sure the accounting uh, professionals will be lobbied hard on this one. Let's now come on to our final topic for the day, or the enduring uh, theme of the Eurozone um, uh, crisis. And um, particularly interesting at the moment, uh, Italy is very much in the spotlight, um, not only at a macro level, uh, a political level, where Silvio Berlusconi uh, has finally resigned as, as prime minister, giving some comfort, I think, to the analysts of the Eurozone in, in general, but also of Italy in particular. Yes, I think that is true. Um, it's very, it's been very fast moving weekend, and with Mario Monti, you know, pushing now to form his government, etc. Um, the former European Commissioner and the advisor to Goldman Sachs, uh, a, te- a true technocrat. What people are saying, and that we'll have, you know, Greece with a government of technocrats, we'll have Italy with a government of technocrats, and this is what people see as reassuring the market and making sure that 
the tough decisions financially and particularly in form of austerity and pushing through those austerity programs that this is what is needed at this time. And sh- sure enough, today we had uh, a five-year issue of government debt get away at, at rates that were well <laughs> record rates yeah three nine but it? still down on kind of numbers that yeah kind so of down touting. on the over seven percent that we saw so, yeah but up from the 5.32 percent absolutely that they had so i do think i mean i had a banker say to me last week which i thought was quite interesting he said you know the whole thing about the referendum in Greece um, actually had the effect of the market got impatient of waiting for Greece, and therefore the market turned to Italy as their focus. Not so much because obviously there are very strong concerns over Italy, but almost the, the market was bored of waiting for the Greece story, and, and that's why we saw so much concern over Italy. Obviously, Italy is a hugely different story than Greece, and if the market can't get reassurance that we aren't um, looking at, you know, obviously the specter of defaults over that, then we're always going to be in very, very volatile situation. We've got Unicredit this uh, expected to release today as well, an announcement of an as much as 7 billion euro rights issue. As, as... Could hardly be worse timing, though, considering it's kind of you, you think back to Unicredit's um, uh, year, really, and how early in the year they were under pressure to, to raise uh, fresh capital. They resisted that pressure. Then they had they were caught up in the whole Libyan disaster because their biggest shareholders are, are the Libyan Investment Authority and the Libyan Central Bank, um, also complicating their attempts to raise fresh capital. But now, you know, they're coming, they're announcing their plan, their final strategic plan and their rights issue just as Italy's right at the centre of the storm. I mean, it really is. You do think back, I mean, obviously that's specific to them, but you do think back to a lot of these banks that face pressure to raise capital. Obviously, the French banks, you know, in 2009, when things were better, even at the beginning part of, you know, 2010 and for the 2010, 2011, and they kept, they sort of resisted doing it, resisted doing it, resisted doing it. And I'm sure there are so many of them who just wish they'd gone out and done the 3 billion, done the 5 billion, done these chunks, because now, as you said, I mean, it is a perfect storm for them in terms of getting this away. I mean, what do you think? Do you think they're going to be able to get this away? I suspect they will only go, will only be going for it if they're if they're fully underwritten, and therefore, mm. you know, uh, that's the interesting angle actually to see to see w- what terms they've got this on. Mm. But um, uh, I, I have to say, I wouldn't like to be the investment bank that's underwriting them. <laughs> um, the uh, the other interesting part of the story that we should talk about as well is uh, that alongside this, the bank's putting out their strategic. Um, uh, direction kind of plan a kind of three to five year plan of where they hope to be going and um, obviously intimately tied up with their capital requirements but um, one um, potentially uh, important macroeconomic impact from their strategic direction is that they are going to focus in far more tightly on the economies that they uh, operate in so in Eastern Europe um, they are the biggest Eastern Europe Eastern European player per se uh, and I think they're going to very much refocus on kind of core economies uh, there. So Poland, Czech Republic um, and Russia and and kind of pull back from other markets where they're less big uh, and less strong, but where they've got capital requirements that um, uh, are problematic in terms of st- overstretching them. Um, so that I mean, the reason I say that's important is because I think it's it could be part of a broader story of uh, big credit crunch pressure on 
on Eastern Europe as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost there's sort of two sides to this coin. One is that banks pulling out, as you said, of sort of peripheral and moving into their core markets. We saw Commerce Bank as well say, look, we're just not going to do lending if it's not in our core markets in Germany and also in Eastern Europe. But the other thing one does wonder is if... um, if we see sort of more marginal players, if we see a real concentration of focus, will there be almost a sort of two-tier Eastern Europe develop where sort of Poland, Czech Republic, where these banks are really focusing on continuing and as well as the Austrian banks and then sort of more marginal areas where the lending is sort of stopped if they're really going to see a sort of very severe slowdown there and a credit crunch as well. Um, you know, that's going to be very interesting because obviously these are some of the fastest growing economies that we've seen. Well, I think the political leaders of Eastern Europe will be watching Unicredit's announcement, um, but also the strategies of of other banks that are big in the region, the Austrians, uh, Sokgen, for example, uh, as well, very closely. It must be quite scary times for them. Sadly, that's all we have time for for today. Uh, All that's left for me to do is to thank uh, Megan Murphy and Brooke Masters for joining us today and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.